Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast where murder and family meet as we explore the family tree of a killer. This is Denise Keelhart. I'm a genealogist, and with me is Zelda Uberovda. I'm brought the party tonight. You brought the party. Uh, do you okay, really, I'm just trying to jazz us up because it's late. Yeah, it is. It is. We are here for you, our listeners, <laughs> because today's today's is going to be fire. I'm telling you, Denise, this is going to be fire. It so. is. This is this is a little different than what we've done in the past, and so we're mm-hmm. we're very excited about this episode. But before we get started, Zelda, I know you've had a rough week. How are you doing right now? I'm okay. I'm okay. I mean, it's. You know, it's weird because we talk about like death and dismemberment and horrible things like every time we record, right? Mm-hmm. And then now um, a, a good friend passed away and mm-hmm. the funeral's this weekend. And so it's it's just hard, right? Yeah. Like it's just hard when it's personal. I'm so sorry. Um, thank you. How are you doing? I'm okay. I've been in a lot of pain for the last uh, <laughs> several days. Yeah, you poor thing. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I have arthritis in my knee, and of course, it flared up after a bunch of storms, and it's not going down anytime soon. So, we are just a couple of sad sacks. We are, but I guess this is what happens when you get over a certain age. <laughs> oh yes, yes, I'm I'm decrepit, and and my oldest just had her orchestra concert last night. Oh, nice! Did it go well? Yes, yeah, she's in fifth grade, so this is her first year. She plays the cello. She's doing fine. And it was funny because she did um, sixth grade orientation last week. Oh, that's cute. And I finally introduced myself to her orchestra instructor. And she's like, oh, my gosh, she's so good. We, I love having her. I told that to my daughter. And she's like, I don't know what she's talking about. I'm always making mistakes. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, then at the concert, she the teacher gave out awards and she gave my daughter most improved and went on about how she's done a magnificent job. And then my daughter, being the perfectionist that she is on the way home, goes, I don't understand. I make mistakes all the time. How I, why would I get an award? Oh, gosh. <laughs> so. Oh, my gosh. It's about progress, not perfection. Yes. And, and her dad and I were like beaming with pride, you know. That's so sweet. Those moments. Um, Before we get started, I do have a couple of corrections in our corrections corner. First of all, I just listened to the full. Now, after every episode and I'm done editing, I upload it, put it out, figure we're all good. It's all golden. I mean, I've listened to it for hours, (laughs) but then I'll still listen to the whole show later. And as I was listening to it recently, I discovered that something happened with the sound at the end. Apologies to anybody who heard that. I'm going to be getting that fixed. Which episode was it? Our very last one on Pamela Hupp. Oh, wow. What happened? Was it a horrible screechy sound? No, it got offline. So we were like, you were responding to stuff before I said it. Oh, no. (laughs) I don't know how that happened because it was all I am pretty prescient. You know, I can read your mind. I know what you're thinking right this minute. And that's so rude. (laughs) Yes, that was rude of you. 
Also, <laughs> in our last episode, also with Pamela Hupp, I said something about um, murderous bread, which got quite the laugh. I was very proud of that joke. But I realized I got things mixed up. And Zelda made, you know, oh, you had that wrong. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, Herman. And I kept all that part in the episode. And then later in the episode, Zelda did correct me because Herman, Missouri is not in Franklin County. And I meant to go back and edit a correction in and I forgot. So here's my correction. Herman is in Gascony County, not Franklin, but they're fairly close to each other. They're like right next to each other. So apologies to all Missourians I offended for making that mistake. On behalf of all Missourians, I forgive you. Thank you. So, like I said at the top, this episode's a little different than other ones we've done. We have covered unsolved cases before in the past, but this one was brought to us by a listener. Her name is Katrina, and her aunt was murdered in 1985 in Dallas, and the case is still unsolved. And Zelda and I have looked over a lot of the details. It's very infuriating. Um, but Katrina is with us on this episode. So welcome to Murderous Roots, Katrina. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So Zelda, you were going to tell us a little bit about it. And then we're going to talk to um, Katrina in a bit. Well, as you mentioned, we found this infuriating. Because what as we were talking before we started recording, one of the things that just is killing me through all of these different episodes we've done is that there are times where the police are really on top of it, like with the Green River Killer, right? Mm -hmm. Like they were on top of it. They did the very best they could with what they had available. And then you have situations like this where the cops did nothing. And I'm just like, what the actual hell? And, you know, I wish I could say this is the first case we've come across where police have been negligent, but it's not. It's not. It's so many of them. So many lives could be saved if, you know, people that are getting paid to do their jobs, do their jobs. Right. But stepping back from my soapbox here for a second, you know, Catherine Diane Mowry, she was a very normal young woman. She was born on February 5th, 1961 to James and Catherine Mowry. She grew up in Kansas. Many people do um, mm-hmm. alongside her five brothers and sisters. Um, I don't think I have all of their names, but I do know that Denise does. So she's going <laughs> to fill all of that in. And I might not fill all of them in because they're living and I don't want to necessarily do that to them. But some of them are. We might with Katrina's permission, if she knows that's okay with them. So her name was Catherine, but she changed her name to Katrina because she was working at a country club where Blaze kept calling her that. And she thought that was a cool name. So she decided to keep it for her own. Well, in 1985, when Katrina was about 24 years old and living on her own in Dallas, Texas, She'd left Kansas when she turned 18. And like many young women, I mean, let's face it, you know, I left home when I was 17 and it was out to see the world. And did I make some, you know, questionable decisions along the way? I absolutely did. And, you know, it's entirely possible Katrina did as well. But, you know, when she was 24 years old, she was doing things that normal 24 year olds will do, including having fights with her sister. So I have five siblings. We, we like to, you know, chatter back and forth at each other. And sometimes we won't speak for a while. But I want to say it was, let's see, it was mid-June 1985. Catherine was planning to drive to Kansas to visit her sister, Deborah. So they had gone to an argument over the phone and Deborah hung up on Catherine and didn't think a whole lot more of it because she just figured her sister would still be coming on the trip. 
Well, then when Catherine didn't arrive, Deborah thought, well, maybe she just decided to cancel her trip without telling anyone because she's still pissed at me. Well, that wasn't what happened at all. Yeah, it's a very sisterly thing to do. Unfortunately, though, on June 25th, 1985, the manager of the apartments at 200 South Marcellus Avenue uh, was walking by an alley when she noticed a strong odor coming from a 1978 Ford LTD park nearby. She called the police. The police came and discovered the body of Catherine Nowry. And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about that because it's awful. I mean, what happened to her was awful. She was deceased and she had been wrapped in a white bed sheet. So the police, of course, immediately were like, oh, you know, could probably was drug overdose, you know, which is ridiculous. But toxicology reports came back and there were no drugs in her system. Her dental records identified her and they were not able to note any marks or wounds on her body. Then they tried to say it was a suicide, which is, again, ridiculous how that would even have worked. I'm not even sure. And then later it was called an unexplained death. They think she was actually killed about two days prior to her body being found. And there was around one to two weeks between the final phone call with Katrina that Deborah had and the family actually learning of death. And eventually uh, her body was released and she is buried in Lawrence, Kansas. So this is like the very bare bones, what happened Mm -hmm. uh, with Catherine. And the more I dig into it, the more infuriated I get. So I can't even imagine, Katrina, how you feel about all of this. So I'm just going to throw it over to you. Is there anything you'd like to share? Well, I think it's very, it it could have been avoided. All this stress and turmoil and, you know, the family was just absolutely divided over it for years, forever, until they're, they all died. You know, um, it was the dividing factor in the family. It kind of outcasted my mom. Her and her sisters were each like a year apart or less. Mm-hmm. So they were a stair step. So it went, uh, my aunt Katrina or Catherine in 1961 and then Joanne was born in 1962 and then my mom in 1963 so they she was the baby but they were so close in age that they were just you know they were all really close growing up and uh I mean once my aunt Katrina was killed um it was really hard on my mom Mm -hmm. but then she met my dad and they got married And then I was born two years later and my mom had, you know, that revival of hope again and was able to honor her sister by naming her daughter after her. Mm -hmm. Well, then when I was two, her other aunt was also murdered or my other aunt was also murdered. My mom's other sister. So, yes, in 1993, also in Dallas. And so um, at that point. I was two and that's kind of when it all went downhill for my mom. She ended up getting a divorce from my dad and going on a downward spiral of self-destruction, more or less. Yeah, I'm sorry. I mean, it is what it is, but we can stop it if we can get some cooperation, (laughs) you know. But, you know, once I got into adulthood, you can't help but notice, you know, you want to know more about who you're named after. Right. 
like naturally. And it was always such a hot topic in the family because my grandparents who were around a lot, you know, they never wanted to talk about either of them Mm. or the situation. And so, and I lived with them for quite a while during my adolescence and for me and my mom, we'd always go to the cemetery. It was like any other normal day, we'd go have lunch with her sisters, like from when I was a baby. Like it was just for me so normal. And then whenever, you know, I got a little older, I'd ask my grandparents, you know, if we could go visit or something, you know, and I've never one time in over 30 years witnessed them visit their graves at all. They wouldn't even talk about it or anything. And it really, really hurt my mom mm-hmm. badly. She hated it. She felt like everyone just, you know, pretended like they never existed, but those were her best friends, you know? Mm-hmm. And she got kind of bitter about it. It was angry. It was infuriating, literally ate her alive from the inside out. Then once I got older, I wanted to help my mom figure out what, what happened Right. And at that point, I hadn't really had any contact with the police or anything. I wasn't, you know, old enough yet to really realize this magnitude of it. And then my mom and I started working on it together. And then I kind of just my mom at this point had really deteriorated in her mental health. So for the last 10 or 15 years of her life, she was um, legally and permanently disabled from her mental health. So she uh, you know, was on disability for SMI. She was just very impulsive and emotional, defensive, you know, really couldn't keep it together hardly at all. And that's kind of when I jumped in to help. And I realized that as I asked questions, the, you know, law enforcement investigators handling this hadn't really, like, she would check in regularly and, you know, they'd say, oh, no, nothing new. And then eventually I'm just like, hmm. <laughs> and so that's when I ordered the death certificate. Mm-hmm. And my mom, you know, we got, I got the death certificate and I knew as soon as I got it, that my mom was not going to be happy with it mm-hmm. because her cause of death was undetermined following autopsy, toxicology, investigation. And it wasn't, being actively investigated this entire time, even though that's what we had always been led to believe. And that's when she uh, took her own life. I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. So so now my children don't have a grandmother. (laughs) And, you know, at this point, it's just pissing me off. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think it could have been easily avoided if someone would have just put in a little bit of effort or communication or Mm-hmm. anything something something more yeah than what they did transparency even just to say we don't you know we've tried this but that didn't work like anything mm-hmm. yeah now you said something to me earlier in our when we were emailing each other so you got the toxicology after your grandmother had died correct after my mom had died Oh, after your mom had died. On top oh, of wow. So that yep. was information they held on to for that long? Yes. Oh, my God. So, yeah, and, and how Katrina put it to me is they never knew that she didn't overdose. They always believed she had it overdosed, at least. That was, that was 
No, that was all of it. That was the belief. My grandmother got one phone call from law enforcement when her daughter's body was found and said that she had died of a cocaine overdose. So my grandmother went the rest of her entire life along with the rest of the family, even my mom. My mom had no idea. Oh my God. I just got the toxicology and the autopsy just a couple weeks ago. Wow. Talk about a freaking monkey wrench in a story. <laughs> well, yeah. And I mean, oh my God, that's just freaking negligence. That's just the fact negligence. That they would tell her that, yeah. tell the family that without knowing for certain, without the yeah. toxicology even said, report being in yet. Yeah, it even says it in, in the newspaper article like toxicology won't be done for another two weeks, but there was evidence that the woman had taken cocaine. Yeah. Oh my god. Okay. That they would at least call and correct that, you know. Oh but. no, no, no. That's when they realized they screwed up and then they never corrected anything. They never told anyone that's not what happened. They never announced anything. Oh my god. So my family has thought this entire time, even some of them still do. I haven't really announced it much yet. It's kind of still shocking to me even. Um, They can listen to this and find out that way. I'm just, I mean, I I shouldn't say I'm shocked because, you know, let's face it. (laughs) Enough has happened around police in this country that honestly nothing shocks me anymore. Mm -hmm. But it is unfathomable the absolutely cruel disregard for truth and for Mm -hmm. justice that these people just operated under. I mean, not because, I mean, we're talking, it wasn't just one person who made that decision. Right. I mean, there are a lot of people who were involved in an investigation like that and they all kept their mouths shut. That's ridiculous. And And they falsely, you know, misled the public along with, authorities and any other investigators and you know family friends like it was biased absolutely immediately from the start 100 percent. and why do you think it was biased i mean what was it that makes you think was it because she was a young unmarried woman who was found in the trunk of a car was it because she there may have been evidence she used drugs in her past was it they're just didn't want to give a fuck about it you know, I mean, I've heard a lot of, you know, I guess somewhat acceptable, you know, possible excuses in my opinion. But <laughs> um, my uncle mentioned, you know, that back in that point in Dallas, 1985, there was a big, big drug war, you know, going on in Dallas, a big drug war. And, you know, they were under a lot of pressure to get all the killing under control. Mm-hmm by the FBI and stuff. And so, you know, you find uh, a, a nude um, white woman and she in a bad neighborhood. And back then, you know, that would have just set off the already tense, you know, culturally diverse and, you know, racially motivated crime in that area at that time. So. Wow. I'm so sorry. I know. So a few years ago, my dad was involved. A scammer got him for quite a bit of money and the police did nothing. I mean, I I know how infuriated I still am over that. Honestly, I don't know how you're not setting them on fire. I mean, that's, you have to, she would be though. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. Cause this is crazy. You know, I have no idea how they were able to get away with doing that. Honestly. 
Yeah. I mean, and it explains so much about the family dynamics afterwards. If they mm-hmm. all thought oh, she yeah. overdosed, that's why I, your grandparents try not to talk about it. They were ashamed, you know, and I get it kind of, but at the same time I have children and, and I would never not go, you know, visit my children's grave or something like that to me, but I guess everyone's different. Well, I'm not giving them a pass per se, but they were of a different generation as yes, well for sure. where family secrets were kept and, and yes. And I, like I said, it's not a pass because there were plenty who went against that, but that was probably their feelings. And I get the impression there's a lot of secrets they kept. Yeah, I'm still finding them <laughs> literally to this day. Which leads me now, before I go any further, I'm going to post it on our social media and on the website, but you have a petition trying to get them to open the case and actively pursue it in Dallas right now, right? I mean, yes, it's for a lot of reasons at this point, but at, mm-hmm. at first, initially, that was the goal. Um, now it's more like pull your head out of your ass and, you know, take accountability or even acknowledge just something. screw up something. Yeah. Well, and my goal for you is try to get Paul Holes's attention on this case, too. I was just listening to his book earlier, actually. Yeah, because this this type of police work I was saying to Zelda would infuriate him. Yeah. So, but since we're going into your family, we're going to do this show just like we do normally. We're going to go into the family tree and then we're going to go into your aunt's tree. So basically we're going to explore Katrina's maternal line on her family. And I won't, I'm going to be honest. I didn't get the whole tree done. Now, Katrina's I'm, been I haven't on even her got tree. the whole tree done. <laughs> well, and it takes years, but her tree, her family's really large. <laughs> um, there are some that have like 12 kids, some parts. Yeah. So there's that. But her grandfather's side of the tree, her mother's father's side is such a mess. It took a long time for me to sort through some things. <laughs> wow. And so that was my focus. <laughs> and Katrina not doesn't really know that side of her family um, because of lots of reasons. And we can get into it or we don't. We're just going to move forward and we'll, we'll get there. Okay. <laughs> if there's a piece of paper I missed because I don't have it, feel free to chime in and tell me um, you're wrong. Okay. okay. If, okay. I, if I even know for sure. Yeah. But. Now, one of the papers I really needed to research everything, including her aunt, was the Dallas Morning newspaper. But... There's only one newspaper archive site that has that paper and only to 1984. So that wasn't going to be very helpful to me. And that's mm-hmm. Genealogy Bank. So I thought, well, you know, let me go see how much it costs through the Dallas Morning News website to access their archives. I have a subscription. That's how I found those articles. I went and they were going to make me subscribe to the whole paper, I believe. Yep. So it's 99 cents for a week for the first eight weeks. Then it's $3.99 a week for up until six months. Then it goes to $5.99 a week. That's over $200 a year, people. <laughs> All I want are the archives. I know. I wish. Yeah. I yeah. know. <laughs> it's, it's really bad. Now, I know places I can probably get to the paper, but it's like an hour away and I didn't have time to do that. I did feel a little hamstrung 
But all I'm asking is if you're with the Dallas Morning News, can you just find a way to get the archives a little bit, at least to 2000, <laughs> so we can access these things? <laughs> they're really hard to search as well. I've noticed when you do get into them, like mm-hmm. I had to dig and dig. And- yeah, we'll start with the basics. Because as Zelda started off, Catherine Diane Mowry was the first child born to James Edward Mowry. She was and- the first daughter born to them. She was the third child. The The boys are older. Okay, well, thank you for that correction, because I did not find in my research. They're, they're nice and hidden. That's good. They're alive. <laughs> um, anyhow, so, and as she was saying, they were step, like step, so super close. My girls are... All of them. They're all five stair step that oh, way. wow. That is so <laughs> crazy. And the marriage, but the marriage between Catherine and James didn't last... It was James's third marriage. His first two ended early. And the sisters had one older half-sibling, correct? From my grandmother, yep. Um, from, from his second marriage, yes. And I was unable to find a marriage record for James and Catherine. Katrina, do you know when they got married? Um, No, but I do know he was known to be quite a bit of a con artist and used a different name in every city and state that he lived in. And so you probably wouldn't be able to find it under his name anyway. <laughs> That's why he was so hard to find. Wow. Thank you. Yes. Now he I feel a little better Jim, about myself. Jim, James. Um, mm-hmm. He is actually a junior. Actually, he's a third or fourth. And but- he had a son also that he named Junior. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he just couldn't count or what, but. Well, and I, I, he was kind of a junior, but kind of not because he didn't have the same middle name as his father. So it was one of those, it depends on how they decide to go with it. Yeah. And I do want to mention that um, your grandmother was also a Catherine and Catherine Shaw. And I think I'll, I might refer to on occasion as Kathy, if that's okay. Absolutely. That's what she went by actually. Okay. So that way it's all good. Her marriage to James was not her first marriage. Now, and and pause the thought, Katrina, I promise I'm going to wrap around to everything here. Uh, there, there is some evidence it might have been her third, but both Katrina and I believe it's an error on the part of the social security applications um, and claims. So that's a database you can go to and you can see when they made a claim. And for women in particular, it will show a list of every name they've had because that's usually part of the application and claims part. When you put in for a new card, because you have a name change that goes on that record. And it indicated that her name around October 1955 was changed to Kathy Marie Swift. But there's no, nobody in her family knows of a Swift. I was looking. I'm pretty sure she would have been married to my oldest uncle's father. Yeah. At that point, anyway. Well, and, and his last name was Maury. So she well, went Maury to Maury as well. So yeah. it's just one of those crazy. But given that her age in 1955, and, and usually it was like a year before. So it's probably been like 1954, 1953 when the name change would have been in. And then they put the date a little late. She was just so young. I doubt that can be correct. Although that is one of those where you kind of want to get the application and just so you can see what happened and who made the error and what happened. It's also um, a really common name yeah. back then, especially. And I looked for a Swift just to make sure that there wasn't something. And I looked in the papers, nothing. So like with you, and I told Katrina, I'm like, um, according to this, she was married. <laughs> She's like, no. 
I looked just to see if I could find anything. And I'm, I'm pretty, I'm right with her on, on this. I don't think it's possible. And this is the first time I've seen this type of error, but it does happen. Errors. But Katrina was born October 1939 in Ottawa, Kansas. Ottawa is a small community just 30 miles south of Lawrence, Kansas. And she was one of three daughters and a son born to her parents, William and Naomi. Sometime around 1955 or 1956, Catherine married Jim Morey. They would have been high school students together. They were young when she had my own kids. Yeah. And I believe she was pregnant and hence why they got married yeah. at the time. And she gave birth to her first child, her son, Jimmy. And I'm not going to go too much into your uncle. And I can always take out his name if you don't think he'd want it out there. I don't think he cares. It's public record when he was born anyway. <laughs> Jim Morey, who, but which Jim Morey was he? Because I was trying to find him. And I did, because um, they were living in Tonganoxie, Kansas at the time. He was a good looking young guy. But I think like most high school marriages, because you're pregnant, they just don't work out. And they're done that. <laughs> Must run in the family. <laughs> so it didn't work out. And they divorced before 1960. Probably before that, because if she had um, the two sons before the girls, they would have had been married. Yep. So after the marriage of Catherine and James fell apart, and largely due to James Mowry and his actions... <laughs> Catherine married one last time to the man who would be the love of her life, Robert Mowry, in 1976. It's the same pronunciation. It's just one letter different. Really? So we went Maury, Mowry, Mowry. I know. That that just blew my mind when I saw that. Wow. So half of the kids have E-R-Y and the other half of the kids have R-E-Y. Oh, my god. In the same house. And they were like the Brady Bunch. They got married. He had like three or four kids from his prior marriage. And then she had her or whatever one was Maury though of course and then you had ery and then all the rey and they all went to school together it was <laughs> just chaos i'm telling you <laughs> I took my line i had the brady bunch written into my script here <laughs> that's awesome um and this was a second marriage for him as well like she was just saying and their marriage and partnership would last until her death in 2007 at the age of 68 and while life was happier for kathy and her girls overall it didn't end the struggles. As we discussed earlier, Catherine left Kansas for Dallas and the murder stays unsolved. And that's what we're hoping somebody does something about, at least giving the family answers. And then her daughter, Joanne, suffered a similar fate in 1993. The difference is that that man was caught and put in prison. Now, Robert Mallory died in 2019, age 79, at Lawrence Medical Center in Kansas. As we mentioned, um, Katrina's mom followed in November 2020 mm. of a broken heart is the way, best way I would put that. Pretty much. Yeah. Now let's talk about James Edward Mallory, Catherine's father, Katrina's grandfather that you never met, right? I did beat him actually. You did. I was very young. I don't <laughs> like remember a lot of it, but I can pick him out of a picture lineup. Okay. Well, and, and this is where I admit I spent way too much time researching this and I was trying to solve the mystery. That was him because he kept changing his name. Finding any sort of paper trail was a challenge. He was born in Beardstown, Illinois, in Cass County um, on January 14th, 1932. But he didn't stay in Beardstown long and he was living with his father and brother in St. Louis by the 1940 census. And honestly, I believe he had a crap life growing up. 
and could explain some of why he was not the greatest man growing up. Yeah, he didn't really have much um, footsteps to follow, I guess. No, that would be the best way to get into it. And we're going to get into his crap life a little bit later. Not that far later, but at the age of 16, probably he had to have parental permission signed. He enlisted in the U.S. Marine Corps and likely spent time in Korea during the war. He was discharged March 1951 and found himself in Sharp County, Arkansas. That is the northern part of the state, close to the Ozarks, Zelda. <laughs> and mm -hmm. in November, he married Velma Desi Godwin. And this marriage was probably his shortest. They divorced in April 1952 in Dallas, Texas. <laughs> oh, you have mm -hmm. something? <laughs> I'm yeah. just like, yep. Mm. Yeah, this is probably his and shortest. Also, Next. my my grandmother's um, family and all of them, they all are from the Ozarks. They all had okay. a house there and everything. So yep. that Day makes counted, perfect right? sense. Mm -hmm. Next, he married Donna Youngblood, a California native around 1953. I could not find a marriage record on this, no matter what I searched. But I know they lived at least part of think, the time in California. I don't think they were ever officially married. And that could be why I couldn't find a marriage record. She was also murdered. Say what? <laughs> oh my gosh. Your family has had so much tragedy. Yep. Donna Youngblood was murdered in Los Angeles um, in a motel room. Was so was no Joanne. There reports on her being murdered. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I know. Here I'm looking. Yeah. Well, and okay. Yeah. She died at, she was 44 years old in September, 1978. I tried to find a newspaper article on her death because I knew there had to be something going on because she died so young. I didn't I know about it until anything. her son told me. So, Oh, wow. Boy, your family has had it. Um, but they had three sons. But James really wouldn't be the one who they called dad. They would take their stepfather's last name instead. And apparently they were never really married, so they never really divorced. So I was wrong. I did not have a divorce on that. But then James found himself in Kansas. I mean, it would have been a really quick turnaround, too. Between Actually, uh, my aunt Joanne was born in Los Angeles. That's so wild because your mom <laughs> was born in Kansas City, Kansas. Yeah. And, and Catherine was born in Kansas. Catherine was actually born in Arizona, but I don't Arizona. know if there's. Okay, boy. Yeah, they worked their way through the state there. <laughs> they sure did. Wow. Okay. Well, after his marriage with Catherine ended, he recovered quickly and married Texan Norma Jean Gross in October 1970. Also, one more thing. Mm -hmm. They were living in Arizona, like Phoenix, whenever my grandmother packed up all the kids and took off and just left him like in the middle of the night and drove straight through all the way back to Kansas and Missouri where her her parents were and never looked back. And so he, wow. he would have went from like either Arizona at that point to Texas. So I don't yeah, think he Texas. ever came to Kansas. He came to Kansas in 1966, at least once because he kidnapped my mom and her sisters out of their grandparents' front yard in, in Missouri. <laughs> When they were little oh and took gosh. them to Texas. Yeah. So, but I don't think yeah. he ever lived in Texas or in Kansas. Sorry. Oh, wow. See how they're all kind of intertwined in there somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so they got married October, 1970. And 10 months later, they would have a daughter. 
14 months after she was born, Norma divorced James. And I get the impression it's usually the women who are leaving him. Irony. (laughs) And as far as I can tell, neither married again. He lived the last six years of his life in a nursing home in Rockwell, Texas, and died in 2006 at the age of 74. I was unable Mm to find an obituary. There wasn't one. No one cared to put one in the paper. And that's why I kind of figured. So when he took your mother and your aunts, how long did he have them? A year. Wow. My grandmother searched for her three daughters everywhere and could not find them anywhere for an entire year. Oh, my goodness. And it wasn't in the papers. Nope. (laughs) Wow. That would mess up a whole family right there. What what year was that? 66. So my mom would have been like three. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And and Kathy would have been a single mom at that point. I mean, she wasn't married again nothing for that period she worked like two full-time jobs Mm -hmm. she is actually retired from KU Mm -hmm. as the manager head honcho person of the their entire like food program Mm -hmm. on campus in Lawrence so she worked there for like 40 years or something so and I know that she also did not list either of my aunts in her obituary as her daughters either. Yeah, I did notice that. My mom did too. The thing because she didn't, there was some obituaries won't list the people who had died before them. They'll only list the people who are currently living. So I thought that was what that was about. My grandfather made sure for my mom specifically that he did, even though they were only his stepdaughters, Robert Mowry. That's who I consider my grandfather, obviously. Um, he made sure and put him in his as his daughters. So. I saw that. That was nice. Um, since Katrina's been working on her tree, there's a lot of information she might have that I might not. So if she sees an error, she'll let me know. I had I did find a couple small errors in her tree and let her know one of them. And it turns out it was just something was posted weird we'll start with the Mallory line, um, the paternal side of Catherine's family. I think there's probably a large hole that could be filled here for you more than the maternal line because you were around the Shaw side of the family more. Or at least... You'd be surprised, actually. They were... I think most of them died, actually, before I came along. Oh, wow. But I mean, obviously, I've heard plenty of stories and everything, but... So here's... What I did find, like I said earlier, I found James in the 1940 census. Kind of would be the best way to put this. (laughs) Because on the census was his father, James Absalom Mallory, who worked for the War Department as a civil engineer. And he lived at 5206 Cote Brillante. Is that how you say that in St. Louis? I don't know. Um, Once again, Zelda, we find ourselves in North St. Louis. Now, James reported the information including the names of his two sons, James and William. But next to their names are the letters A-B, meaning they were absent. Now, the instructions that were given to the census taker was to get a list of names of residents who had that as their usual residence on April 1st, 1940. If a person was temporarily absent, they were to put A-B by their names. So where were his sons? I'm not sure. 
Um, he also had a sister named Joanne Marie as well, which is yes, also and really I know where weird. she was. Me too. <laughs> she was with her grandparents, so it's possible that they were with their grandparents temporarily. It's just hard to know for sure. I also noticed that James Jr. was listed as a widow, but that wasn't exactly true. So to help you understand, I need to tell you a little bit more <laughs> about James. Which James Absalom. are we talking about? <laughs> uh, we're talking about James Absalom Mallory Jr. So the second James Mallory, son of James Sr. and Margaret Ligori Mattingly. James was born in 1906 in St. Louis and would grow up in the North St. Louis neighborhood of Jeff Vanderloo. At that time, it was a diverse neighborhood with a lot of industry as well as some wealth. In fact, Zelda, they lived less than two miles from one of the most exclusive neighborhoods in St. Louis at that time, the private enclave called Vandeventer Place. The entrance gate to this swanky street is now at um, Forest Park near the Jewel Box and the Korean War Memorial. So they had this huge private entry gate. I mean, it's big. And it was, I want to say... I can't remember how many, but it was, it was a nice little weird square. Interestingly enough, Vandeventer Place is not in the Vandeventer neighborhood. Why? I don't know. However, as the city grew and got more and more crowded, the wealthy left this neighborhood. And in 1947, half of Vandeventer Place was raised to the ground and a VA hospital put in its place. Ooh. James Sr. was a merchant in dry goods and a very successful one at that. His son, Junior, second of the six children, would attend college and take a course in engineering at Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. But he didn't go beyond a year of schooling, at least according to the 1940 census that said he only had one year of college under his belt. <laughs> then in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch on January 26, 1930, I found a marriage announcement. James was marrying a young woman from Arkansas, much like his son, James Edward, would do after him. <laughs> Just go to Arkansas and get married to a woman. He wed Marion Joseph McNeese on New Year's Eve in Newport, Arkansas. And what was interesting is it mentioned that she had taken, was taking this college course, but she was only 16 when they married. So I do have questions. Yeah. And the announcement said the couple would live in St. Louis after their ceremony, but their marriage didn't even last a year. Marion filed for divorce in Arkansas, citing indignities. In November 1930. I didn't even know that was an option. <laughs> well, and it may, I always, I'm like, what, what indignities? I'd yeah. like to know more on what defines that. According to oh. the law anyway. <laughs> and one more thing. Marion had just given birth to a baby girl in October, right before the divorce. Mm. Wow. As far as I can tell, she never had a relationship with the baby, never had a relationship with James Jr. And was raised by her stepfather who gave her his surname. So I'm noticing a repeat between James Jr. and James Edward. It goes up further than that too. <laughs> oh, yeah. It does. James recovered and for unknown reasons found himself on the other side of the Mississippi River in Jerseyville, Illinois, home to Marie Lucille Snyder. On June 24, 1931, the 24-year-old James married 18-year-old Marie in her hometown and they started their family soon after as in six months after they married, soon after. So I think I know why they got married. And they welcomed James Edward into the world. Fifteen months after that came daughter Joanne, and then in 1934, son William Jean. 
Around June 1943, James Jr. married for the last time to Erna Nauman, his third marriage, her second. She came to the marriage with a son, but the couple would not have any children of their own, as far as I could tell. Now, I do want to discuss the Mallory siblings really quick, as in James um, Jr.'s siblings, William Jean and is it Joanne or Joan Marie? Well, it's spelled like Joan. Mm-hmm. Um, but at least my aunt went by Joanne. Ah, interesting. Okay. She kind of did the same thing as as my aunt Catherine. Yeah. How she changed her name, but I know Joanne didn't officially change the spelling or anything like Katrina did. Okay. Now I find it really odd how bad the relationship must have been between James and Edward and his father and stepmother to basically disappear from them and never come back. Why him and not them? We'll start with Joanne, who was born in St. Louis in 1933. On November 6, 1954, she married Robert J. Mayer at Pope St. Pius Church on South Grand in St. Louis, just south of Tower Grove Park. And I know this because I found a large wedding announcement in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch on November 14, 1954. The announcement also included the addresses of the bride and groom's parents. In this, I found out that James Jr. and family now lived on Pestalozzi Street, just to the east of Tower Grove Park, in a beautiful home that is probably worth half a million today. I was going to say, it's a super cute neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. And St. Pius is still a really lovely place to go to mass. So I'm sure. If you're in the neighborhood. I also learned that Joanne graduated from St. Louis University indicating that she had her father's full financial support. She died just five and a half years ago in Chicago. She was 83. She also did not come forward and claim her brother's remains at all or anything. So she had um, just disconnected from him as well. Absolutely. Like we were wondering actually like where those siblings were and like tried to, you know, reach out and stuff and, it's like a no big one mystery, ever... but why, what, what happened that made him go and enlist at 16? He stole everything from everyone. He betrayed everyone. He got, you know, a bad rep. He just kept doing it over and over. I like my grandfather had marriage and children. No one ever even knew about, mm-hmm. you know, like I didn't even find out till after my mom died. Right. I found an email from her half brother in her inbox from her email after she died that was in her spam box that got filtered in there from her half brother wanting to connect. Wow. Yeah. And so now him and I have, you know, a pretty good relationship. We talk quite often. So. Wow. Now, brother William Jean is a bit of a mystery. He stayed He's out a of the doctor. Huh? He's a doctor. Oh, really? That's awesome. Mm -hmm. He stayed out of the papers, but he died at age 61 in 1996. On his social security application, his mother is listed as Erna Nauman, not Marie Snyder, who was his mother. And that was his stepmother. And it's a sign of what's to come. William served in the U.S. Air Force during the Vietnam War and is buried at Jefferson Barracks National Cemetery. William married Bernice Busiek in 1958. And he was the father of at least three children. He married a second time in 1972 to a Patricia. I don't know much more than that. Other than I mean, usher and his sister's wedding. 
What were you saying? I'm sorry, Katrina. I mean, it's kind of just like the same story repeats itself over and over and over throughout the generations on that side. It seems like it's this side is just a mess is the best way to put. So despite what the 1940 census said, Marie Lucille Snyder Mallory did not die. So James Absalom Jr. was not a widow. Yeah, he, um, he abandoned her. Yeah, he was a second time loser. So my impression is they got married and they were living in Illinois. Then he took the boys and Joanne with him to St. Louis. However, I think she was a bit of a mess herself. So <laughs> there's a lot of stuff. Went over on. that. <laughs> yeah. So, I know what happened with James Jr. And, you know, unlike his son who left at 16 and never returned to St. Louis, James Jr. lived his entire life there after he left his wife, basically, <laughs> until his death in 1979. Another little note about James Edward. He was never mentioned in his siblings' obituaries or even his father's obituary. He's buried next to my aunts in an unmarked grave, if that tells you anything. That says <laughs> a lot right there. But what happened to Marie? Where was she in 1940? There were hints on other trees, but no records connected. So I looked at her parents and siblings, and they led me to the answers I sought. Marie Lucille was the daughter of Herbert Snyder and Harriet Blay, or Hattie. And she was their oldest child born in October 1912, likely in Jersey County, Illinois. And it appears that Marie just left her family or had her family left in St. Louis and returned and stayed home without her three children. When this would have happened would have been when James Edward was around three to five years old, when his brother William was one or two, and Joanne was right in between there. Um, and there's a multitude of reasons why this happened. Like she said, her, he left her, he abandoned her, but took the kids with him. But, you know, that's the most surprising part. Well, I don't think he probably did it because he loved his kids. I think it was probably to hurt her, but. Probably. But here's what happened next. She got married again, this time to George Harry Yim a man 20 years her senior, around 1937. And then in August 1938, she and George had their first of two daughters. Their second daughter would be born the next year. In the 1940 census, they lived in Alton, Illinois, and George owned a movie theater that he also operated. Now, I believe Marie left George at some point, or maybe the opposite. He died alone in a hotel room in 1958 in Alton. And his obituary made no mention of Marie. Oh. Them hotel rooms, I guess. <laughs> I, I think he was living in the hotel. And the reason I think Maria left him, and I'm pretty sure she did, and is because she was never mentioned when her brother married. But her, yeah, it, there's just so many things where she's not mentioned and then she suddenly is mentioned. So it's like she disappeared for a time. I've noticed that she's one of the only people on my grandfather James's side of the family tree that I have DNA matches and connections to the most recent. Oh, that's good. That That's awesome. So when her oldest daughter married in 1960, there was no mention of Marie in her engagement or wedding announcement at all. Hmm. She was presented good grudge holders. <laughs> no, she was presented by her grandparents. It oh, was wow. and and at this point her grandpa her father had died and her mom had remarried and it's 
she is the grand, you know, they presented her oldest daughter, Shirley, as granddaughter of Mr. Mr. and Mrs. Gray. And there was no mention of her at all. Although three years before, in 1957, when her youngest daughter with George married, she was mentioned in the announcement as Mrs. Marie Mowry. So she's divorced George Yim, and she goes back to Mowry. Hmm. I found that odd. And she was mentioned as the mother of the bride. Now, I dug further to see if I could tighten up the timeline. This was just a couple days ago. <laughs> and what I found left me even more thrown. Um, I can say with a great deal of confidence that Marie and George likely divorced before 1943. I know this because she threw a fifth birthday party for Shirley and her name was listed as Marie Mowry. Now, in 1946, first in May, then in December, two children born to her with the last name Mowry were placed into adoption, both adopted by two different couples. There was a legal notice that indicated the children were removed from her home. That wasn't voluntary. I turned to I, Zelda I did, to read it to go. I did. Yeah, I did hear something about that. And I do know that one already knows they were adopted. I found that out when I was digging on other things and actually had a relationship with her half siblings. Oh, there's a lot of I, them like that I've found so far. And I don't believe the boy, William Thomas, given up for adoption, was the same as William Jean, who lived with his father in 1940. These were two different Williams. So she named a second son, William. And I think he was a toddler infant when he was given up for adoption. Then in 1948, her mother announced that Marie was engaged to Harry Hunt. They were to marry in June of that year, but I don't know if that came to pass. The Illinois marriage records don't go that far out. I found an article in 1949 discussing a double birthday celebration for her oldest, who was turning 11. That's Shirley, not James Edward. <laughs> and for another daughter turning five. This brings us to her giving birth to at least eight children at this point. Oh my goodness. So that would be James Edward, Joanne, William, the two she gave up for adoption, her two other daughters, Shirley and Carol, and then this third child. And she was still going by Marie Mowry. You might have to send me all this later so that I can- Oh, I am up. sending all of it to you. <laughs> <laughs> in 1957, I found another article discussing Marie Mowry. This time, she was taking her eight-year-old daughter to the hospital after being bitten on the lip by a dog. They published that in a freaking newspaper? <laughs> yes. This daughter had a different surname than any of Marie's previous husbands, Cantrell. On Mary Margaret's wedding announcement, her father was listed as the late Russell E. Cantrell. The only Russell E. Cantrell I found in Alton was born in 1903, and died in 1957 in the home of his parents. So if that was her father, they were not living together when she was eight years old. Huh. And there was no mention of Mary Margaret in his obituary either, much less Marie. I know there's a little bit of history of falsifying paternity. Mm-hmm. And that that's what I'm thinking, is that she was given a name, that's your father, and that's whether or not it's true is the question mark. Now, Mary Margaret died in 2013, and she did mention her mother in the obituary and all the siblings in Illinois, even one of the ones that was given up for adoption. What is not mentioned is her three half-siblings that were the children of James Absalom Mowry Jr., which makes me believe that Marie's children, after leaving, after James left her or she left him, 
never knew about that family. They never knew about each other. Sounds right. Um, and probably now with DNA, they're finding out about each other. Well, yeah, I've, I've had to do a lot of like, where did you come from again? Yeah. <laughs> where do you fit in here? Oh, okay. Yeah. Hmm. In 1966, Marie would marry one last time to Clyde Foster. He died in 1978. She in 1979. She was 66. And that's what I call a mess. <laughs> to sort through. <laughs> I, I was finding all these new articles because I'm like, why don't I just look at Marie Mowry? It was just like one of those last minute things in the newspaper. And then everything started to pop. I'm like, oh, you've got like Catherine Marie Mowry. Then you've got Joanne Marie Mowry. Then just Marie <laughs> Mowry. And then you got E-R-Y. Then you have R-E-Y. And then. <laughs> yeah. Now, Marie's <laughs> father was Herbert A. Snyder. And he lived a short life. Um, born in 1885. He first married in 1909 to Rachel E. Long, and she went by Dolly. Hmm. What Dolly has to do, I, I, I'm, it's probably like the nickname my, my sister gave her daughter. She calls hmm. her Bug. Just one of those random nicknames that had met, makes sense to me. Just stuck or something? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh. And this marriage was short with no known children, ending in less than four years. On Christmas Eve in 1913, Herbert married Hattie Blay, a young woman of 18 to his 28. At least she was an adult, right, Zelda? Thank God. Yeah. Marie was their firstborn, and a few years later, they had a son, Stuart, who would fight in World War II in the Pacific Campaign. Herbert was a carpenter who died in 1936 at the age of 50 in Colorado Springs, Colorado, over 800 miles away from his family in Alton, Illinois. It was the Great Depression, and according to his obituary, he had been out of work for two years. Hmm. I, I believe he went to Colorado looking for employment. And it recently occurred to me, though, that it was around this time that Marie and James Jr. likely split. So I do wonder if James took the kids at a time when she was emotionally not present and took advantage of the situation. Imagine um, that. Yeah. Hattie married not long after his death to Harry Gray, and they added one more daughter to the family, Velma. And Let's take a moment to appreciate Velma. Yes. That's a second that's Velma. a great name. <laughs> the Flintstones or something yeah, Scooby-Doo in the gang yes. yeah oh my god my daughter loves her for Halloween I'm an idiot right now <laughs> <laughs> now Hattie died in 1966 at 71 her husband um, Harry Gray died um, 10 years later at the age of 90 oh now back over to the Mallory craziness <laughs> So let's go to James Jr.'s father, Catherine's great-grandfather, James Sr. And James Absalom Sr. was born in Memphis, Tennessee in 1872, but he grew up in Missouri, first in Bourbon, then in St. Louis. Around 1902, at the age of 30, he married Margaret Ligori Mattingly, daughter of George Mattingly and Rosella Ann Thompson. Now, earlier I mentioned James Jr. ran a dry goods store and did well. In 1910, the family even had a domestic servant in the home, and their house was paid for by 1920. And it was a home valued at $5,100, according to the 1930 census. Pretty good for that time. Yeah, and he offered a steadiness to his family that his father didn't. Sadly, James uh -huh. Sr. died in 1936 at age 65, and his wife ended up taking over the store with the help of their youngest son, Edward. Margaret lived a long life, dying in 1977 at the age of 95. 
Now, speaking of James Sr.'s father, Katrina mentioned something interesting to me uh, in our email messages, something I didn't notice in my research exactly. She said that Isaiah Mowry, James's father, married four times, and each time he got his wife pregnant, he would leave her and move on, essentially. Oh, God. And I suppose to some degree this was true. Isaiah was the first child born to Samuel Mowry and Polly Ryland. And he entered the world in 1837 in Ohio. He married for the first time in 1858 to Eunice Baird. Two years later, a son Cyrus Baird Mowry was born. Then the Civil War began, and Isaiah joined Company I of the 163rd Ohio Infantry as a second lieutenant in May 1864. He was mustered out just four months later at Camp Chase. He was kicked out, actually. Oh, do you have something? Because I didn't see anything in the actual form. It's not in there. No. He got caught, like, um, ransacking homes of people that lived near that or something like that. That would do it. Now, (laughs) I I believe it's likely that Eunice actually died around this time, Um, mainly because their son Cyrus lived with Isaiah's parents in the 1870 census. Yeah. And I don't think she remarried. There's other Eunice Fairs who were growing up at around the same time, which you wouldn't think that would be a common name, but it was a little bit more common than you think. Because um, <laughs> I was trying to sort and make sure she wasn't one who married and they weren't divorced. So Cyrus is living with his parents in 1870. He did not live with his father because after Eunice died, he left Ohio, Isaiah did, and made a brief stop in North Webster, Indiana, where he met and married wife number two, Josephine Boydston, in hmm. June 1865. Two years later, their son Wilbur Samuel Mowry arrived, only to be abandoned soon after. In the 1870 census, he and his mother lived with Josephine's mother, Jane, as she worked as a seamstress. But where was Isaiah in 1870? He was in St. Louis with his brand new wife, Catherine Laura Absalom, a woman he would have five children with and remain married to until his death at age 58 in 1896. Wow. Yeah. Um, A quick couple quick facts to fill things in a bit. Isaiah's father was very successful in Ohio, Samuel Mallory. He grew up in Pennsylvania, then came to Ohio where he married. This grandson of German immigrants was a farmer who built his estate up over the years. In 1850, the real estate was valued at 6000 20 years later, after relocating to Franklin County, Tennessee, his estate was worth $25,000. Wow. And he had a personal estate of $18,500. Wow. So that was, was real money back then. Yeah, he was very wealthy. And then he ended up returning to Ohio where he died a year after Isaiah died, actually. Oh, and in his will, he left money to his son, Henry, the children of his son, Levi, and his grandson, Cyrus. So Isaiah's son, Cyrus, but no Hmm. money to the rest of Isaiah's children. Hmm. So it could be he didn't know of their existence. He lost track. Isaiah, like his grandson, great-great-grandson would do later on. James Edward just kind of disappeared. Cyrus and Wilbur were never mentioned in any of their St. Louis siblings' obituaries. However, Cyrus's obituary did mention his St. Louis siblings, but he didn't mention Wilbur. Hmm. And Wilbur stayed in Indiana. That's where he lived the rest of his life. 
Wow. Having grown up in Indiana, I don't (laughs) recommend it. But I do have to say this is really inspiring me to write my own obituary and list out every effing relative I've ever had, whether they want to be connected to me or not. It's like, yeah. The ones that don't want to be connected just for spite. Yeah. And maybe I'll throw some in there that aren't actually related to me, but who would hate being put in my obituary. (laughs) Now, Catherine, Catherine Absalom, I should say, she immigrated to the United States with her father from their home in London, England around 1865. And likely with her sister, Sarah Susan, and her brother, James Henry. Their mother, Catherine Spillard, daughter of John, died in 1858. Her father passed away in 1878 in St. Louis. Now, I have some random stories from this tree that I thought would be the fun way to do this. So I found a lot of stories in your family, Katrina, and I thought I would share some of them. So we will start with Sarah Susan Absalom's husband, Robert Bullock. But before I do, I did read something interesting on her Find a Grave page, or at least her sister Catherine's page. Apparently, she never liked James Absalom Sr. Wait, James Absalom, is that right? No, she never liked Isaiah um, Mallory. Sarah Dennett from England. She she didn't like him one bit. And so she actually changed her sister's obituary before it went to the press to be the way uh. she wanted it. That's called spite. But her husband was Robert Bullock. And she got married to Robert Benbow Bullock, I should say, on August 17th, 1874. He was also an English immigrant who came to the United States around 1865. And according to this very lovely write-up, Robert was born in 1842 in England in a home that his family had lived in for over 250 years. At the age of 14, he'd entered into an indenture agreement of an apprenticeship. When he arrived in New York City with only a guinea to his name, he would use his document of indenture as a reference to get work. Then he worked there for a few months and dry goods and ended up moving to Mobile, Alabama. And he really liked this work he was doing, but there was a yellow fever outbreak and he went through it. And then the next time the outbreak came up, he's like, I'm done. And he went North and he went to Louisville, Kentucky. Well, he was having health issues in Louisville. So he decided I'm, I'm sick of this crap. I'm going to head East. And he was taking the train and it stopped in St. Louis and he gets off the train in St. Louis, before the next train and he decides, you know, I'm going to stay here. And apparently he well, the, he got his very first job in St. Louis at William Barr and Company. It was a department store that would later be acquired by David May and merged with another store to create a St. Louis favorite, Famous Bar department store. I remember Famous Bar. Mm-hmm. Those were great stores. Yes, until and now Macy's it's Macy's. But yes. it... The downtown store happened to be the very first air-conditioned department store in the country in 1914. I have another little factoid. Okay. They had the same wooden escalators, the original wooden escalators in that building the entire time it was a department store. That's really cool. Now, to make a very long tale shorter, Robert Bullock would start his own dry goods store and even entered into a partnership with Sarah and Catherine's brother, James Henry Absalom. Robert would help other family members in their business endeavors and eventually go beyond dry goods. In the early 1900s, he even became president of a bank in St. Louis and invested his money in other businesses, namely 
he bought stock in the American Arithmometer Company, a St. Louis company organized by American inventor William S. Burroughs. This company would change names and be known as the Burroughs Corporation, which was merged with another company in 1986 and is now known as Unisys. Now, because of his wise investment in stock early on in this company, he would die a millionaire in November 1925. They estimated the value of his stock worth $2.5 million, which is like $41 million today. And that's you had after- some really illustrious ancestors. You did. <laughs> this is an uncle of yours. And that was after distributing a million in stock of evenly amongst family years prior to his death, by the way. Wow. Now, we're over to the Mallory family and Kenneth Mallory, the nephew of James Absalon Sr. and through his youngest sibling, Samuel. Now, Samuel worked in the family business of dry goods for a time, but not long after his oldest of four children, Kenneth, was born around 1911, he and his wife, Irma, left St. Louis for good, selling in Adams County, Colorado. I stumbled on the following story about young Kenneth's early death. Youth dies on train. While on a train being removed to a lower altitude to alleviate his suffering from heart disease, Kenneth Mowry, 20 years old, son of Sam Mowry, died late Tuesday near Hudson, Colorado. Young Mowry was on his way to St. Louis. And he wasn't 20, though. He was 16. Oh, wow. Now, back over to Cyrus Mowry, Isaiah's firstborn son. He had four children with his wife, Mary Luella McNabb. Their only son was Oscar Samuel, who, while born in Missouri in 1888, was actually raised near Dallas, Texas. In 1940, he ran into an unfortunate incident where he was driving while intoxicated. Yeah. He ended up being arrested and was given a choice of serving 105 days in jail or paying a $100 fine. But this won't be the only time that driving and bad choices would get him in trouble. And much like his cousin Kenneth, he did not live as long as he probably should have. And I think I should submit him for an, a Darwin Award after reading this article. Oh, God. Mr. Mowry was killed early Thursday at Five Points near Dallas when he fell from a truck. Now, why did he fall from the truck? Because witnesses reported the police he had opened the truck door to check his tires. <laughs> it's okay to laugh, Katrina. Dear Lord. What was he thinking? He's driving and he's going to check his tires? <laughs> he wasn't thinking he was drinking. No. By, by now, I'm questioning the wisdom of the Maori line as it involves vehicles. <laughs> the next tale did not change that concern. Isaiah's daughter married Frank Lloyd Murphy, and they had two sons. Their oldest son, John Edward, had a lot of luck. Luck his friend didn't have when they decided to entertain themselves. This is from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch on January 24th, 1922. The sport of cracking the whip on a sled hitched behind an automobile caused the fatal injury of Robert Hollander, 18 years old, last night. He died at Barnes Hospital at 1 a.m. Hollander Edward Murphy, so this is Sally Mallory Murphy's son, age 14, and Morris Gladson had been coasting with a bobsled on Art Hill, were on their way home on Government Drive when they attached their sled to the rear of a Buick automobile, which was going north. Witnesses told policemen that the driver of the machines apparently attempted to 
give the boys a thrill by taking a zigzag course, which caused the sled to swing from side to side of the road. At a curb in the road near the lagoon boathouse, the machine veered to the west side of the road, which was the wrong side for traffic going north, and at a curb, it grazed the mud guard of a machine being driven south. The sled was slung directly in the path of Young's machine, which struck it. Oh my God. Yeah. The three youths were knocked from the sled and Hollander was unconscious when picked up. The driver of the Buick machine drove away. Oh my God. Now, Young hailed Ralph Cohen, a resident at the Bunkingham Hotel who took the youth to Barnes Hospital, where it was found that Hollander's skull was fractured and Murphy's left ankle was broken. Gladson was only slightly injured and was sent home. And this was the second fatal sledding accident in four days. Oh, my God. I mean, it, yeah. Okay, so seriously, is there like an award for how much tragedy one family can go through? Because, I mean, even in, I mean, we're used to mayhem, destruction, dismemberment. I mean, mm-hmm. but this is an unusual amount. Yeah, for one family. This incident remained alive with a broken ankle, but yeah, that's a lot. It's like, and this is only one half of the family, by the way. I didn't get in depth with the Mattingly family. (laughs) I saw that look, Katrina. (laughs) (laughs) But unlike the Maori family with members who served in, in the Union, the Mattinglys fully supported the Confederacy during the Civil War. I found the following in the Tribune, I think it was Oakland. On January 18th, 1978. And basically it was this um, column where people would send in questions and looking for answers. And this person had a genealogy question and her name is Sarah Fraser. And she was wanting to know about George Thomas Mattingly and that he used to tell stories to the kids about his time in the Confederate army. And she was talking about how the, she used to go to meetings of the United Daughters of the Confederacy and had a great time singing songs and telling tales of the Old South. So they re- respond to the answer and they said, through the Richmond office, you were able to confirm some of your grandfather's war stories. Not that you didn't believe him. One thing you did not know was that he was born in 1845 and thus was a teenager during the war. He served in the 1st Mississippi Cavalry and the 10th Kentucky Mountain Infantry. As he had said, he did indeed furnish his own horse and servant, was promoted from private to lieutenant, and was wounded in the Battle of Shiloh. Like most Confederate soldiers, he was never discharged, but simply sent home with his mule and a gun and told to take up farming. It's a great story, but I don't know where they found their information or their their sources on this. Because I tried to find him. I went through Fold 3, all the Civil War records I could find. I cannot confirm the story at all on my end. Wow. So I don't know. uh, Yeah. Unless she gave them information that he was listed as something else. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I wanted to confirm it for you, though, Katrina. But I am able to verify that the information in the obituary of George's half-brother, William E. Mattingly, who was born to Robert Mattingly and his first wife, Lucinda uh, Abel, was true. And the obituary is published in the Messenger Inquirer on July 29th, 1926. Um, W.E. Mattingly, 92, for 30 years a resident of the West Louisville neighborhood, died at his home there this morning. Death was caused from double pneumonia and infirmities of old age. 
Mr. Mangley was a Confederate veteran of the Civil War, having served in, Ch in Chenault's regiment under the command of General John Morgan. During his service in the Army, he received only two slight injuries. He was taken captive by the Union forces and lodged in prison at Fort Douglas, Virginia, where he stayed for 21 months. At the close of the war, he was released and from Virginia went to Waverly, Kentucky, where he married and lived until 30 years ago when he came to West Louisville. For all of my people who live near Louisville, it's Louisville. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but I, I'm going to say it like a St. Louisan. Anyhow. Um, I, well, St. Louisans mispronounce everything like River de Pairs and Carondelet. <laughs> it's Sorry. not Carondelet? Come on. Okay. <laughs> and since we're knee deep in the Civil War, this brings me to the tale of George Mattingly's brother-in-law, Charles William Thompson. So Rosella Thompson's brother. Charles was born around 1843, the oldest child of Cyril Thompson and Mary Elizabeth Payne. He was about four years older than sister Rosella. Sometime around May 1864, he enlisted in the Confederate Army. Which unit, I'm not sure, but he was soon captured near Henderson, Kentucky, along with another new recruit from his hometown, John Pierman Powell. But unlike how things had been done in the past with Confederate POWs, their fate would not be spending time in Alton, Illinois, like so many of our past. I was going uh, to ask about that. We have had. several serial killers who spent time there. Yeah. Instead, they found themselves victims to Order Number 59, issued by General Stephen Burbridge of the 26th Kentucky Infantry on the Union side. The order issued on July 16, 1864 read as follows, or at least part of it, because it's a lot longer. Whenever an unarmed Union citizen is murdered, four guerrillas will be selected from the prison and publicly shot to death at the most convenient place near the scene of the outrages. Now, Burbridge believed this to be an effective way of dealing with guerrillas operating in the area because they were causing a lot of destruction and even harm to pro-Union families. I do not endorse his position. <laughs> just to be clear. In fact, at the time of the order, two civilian men, Mr. Porter and Mr. James E. Rankin, had recently been murdered by guerrillas. Both Thompson and Powell were said to have been captured with the guerrillas, and it was they who would be executed under the order. Oh my gosh. Now, a little side note, apparently James E. Rankin was not yet dead when they were to be put to death. When he learned that the two men were to be executed, he wrote a note asking that their lives be spared. They were not. And he, he did die from his wounds, but like almost two weeks later. I found the following on Charles Thompson's Find a Grave webpage, and it sums everything up neatly from all the newspaper articles I found at the time. So I'm going to just borrow it exactly as said. Charles William Thompson and John Pierman Powell were members of the St. Alphonsus Parish. The two soldiers were taken to the riverbank, placed in chairs with hands bound to a fence and eyes covered with handkerchiefs, and were faced by two firing squads. After the execution, their bodies were returned to family in Davies County. Father Egermont said mass for the two young soldiers at St. Alphonsus. Now, also on the Find a Grave site, there is a poem written by one of Charles's three sisters, but I don't know which one, and it's possible it could have been written by your great-great-great-grandmother, Rosella. And I'll put the poem on the episode page and I will send it to you as well if you haven't seen it yet, Katrina. And 
like I said earlier, I didn't spend as much time on the maternal line, but we're going to go there now. Um, I've got a really quick question. The St. Alphonsus Parish you're talking about, is that the one in St. Louis? No, this is one in Kentucky. Okay, thanks. Mm-hmm. Um, Catherine's grandfather on the maternal side was William E. Shaw, and he descended from a large family, lots and lots of children in each generation. In fact, William was the sixth of 12 children. He was born in February 1925 in Dade County, Missouri. Those Ozarks, huh? Now, where is Dade? It's in the middle of nowhere, but it's between <laughs> Joplin and um, Springfield, Missouri, but to the north. I've been there. It is in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. By the way, the county was named after Virginian Major Francis Dade. I had to look this up. Who fought and died in a battle during the Second Seminole War. Why someone named a Missouri county after him is beyond me. He had nothing to do with Missouri or Missouri. I, I don't understand. I mean, there are southern states with his name attached, like Florida, Miami-Dade, Florida. It makes sense. But Missouri? Missouri That's does what? consider itself a southern state. Sometimes, yeah, well. Just saying. I hate to tell him. Um, anyhow, the Shaw family were amongst the earliest settlers of Dade. Judge Samuel Ephidia, I think that's how you pronounce it, Shaw, his wife Mary Catherine Petty, and their first two children left Kentucky around 1840. Once in Missouri, they would have six more children, and I believe two of their children died before 1860. Their oldest, Joseph and Jerome. Um, Samuel would be elected a judge in 1874. Now, Katrina's great-great-grandfather was Judge Samuel Mannery Shaw, also born in Dade County in 1846. Soon after Samuel turned 18, he enlisted in Company D of the 6th Missouri Cavalry on the Union side for an enlistment of three years. And he wasn't the only one in his family to enlist in this regiment. His older brother James enlisted in the same company and regiment in September 1861 with their brother William. Both William and James would serve in the Union through the entirety of the war. While William remained in Company D, moving up in rank to first sergeant, Samuel moved to a different regiment in 1863, the 15th Missouri Cavalry. And amazingly, all three men survived the war and none became prisoners of war. At least not as far as I can tell. Um, although James did lose his horse and equipment in May 1864, as they were captured by Confederate forces. All three men would muster out in 1865, James and May, Samuel and William in September. Samuel married Lucretia Sarah Jane Hobbs, a neighbor to his family in March 1868. Like Samuel, Lucretia came from a large respected family, also early settlers to Dake County, and she was the fourth of 11 children. Lucretia and Samuel had 10 children of their own, four boys, four girls, and a set of twin girls, Elva and Elsie. It would be their son, Silas Ephedra Shaw, who would leave Missouri for greener pastures of Kansas. I think he wanted his children to be Jayhawks. That's what I like to believe. Yes. Hey, we got two Jayhawks here, so you watch yourself. <laughs> the first thing I learned about where I work is we hate the Jayhawks. I'm like, cool beans. I'm from Indiana. I don't know what that means. <laughs> that means you hate me. Think about that. I could never hate you. Okay. 
So Silas left Missouri around 1891 and married his hometown sweetheart, Molly Markham, who was now Muskogee County, Oklahoma, but then was Choctaw land. Come to think of it, isn't it Choctaw land now? <laughs> now again, I'm very confused. But the couple soon returned to Day County where they would raise their 11, raise 11 of their 12 children. One of them died, at, uh, was a baby who died, basically, which happened a lot back in those days. And much like his ancestors before him, Silas farmed the land. Sometime between 1914 and 1920, the family headed west to make their home in Greenwood Township in Franklin County, Kansas, a small community of about 400 people today. Katrina, do you know why Silas left Missouri? Know anything about that side of your family there? Um, I know quite a bit, but it's not right in front of me. Okay, that's I okay. I have to kind of look it over. There's so many kids from each Yep, <laughs> there's a ton. Well, he would have been yeah. in his 40s when they left, and some of the older children did stay in Missouri. Mm-hmm. Uh, Catherine's grandfather was Silas's son, William uh, William <laughs> E., born in 1902 in Seabert, Missouri. At the age of 22, he married Naomi F. Bean. Oh, and his brother George married Naomi's sister, Daisy. And hey. unlike his father, who stayed in one place once they made it to Kansas for the most part, William and Naomi moved around a little bit around Kansas. First, they Ozarks. went to call, huh? Ozarks yeah. for a little while. Yeah, the Ozarks, they went to Coffee County, Kansas, which is southwest of Franklin County. Then they would end up in Osage County, maybe a little bit of time in Topeka. I think that was them and Lawrence. Yep. Yeah, I think I'd have to look at it. But the couple, actually, they... Then they went to the Ozarks, like she was saying, in Ridgedale. Um, just a, it's a small town south of Branson. And the couple were married for 51 years before William died in 1976. And Naomi died four years later. Yep. They, they were pretty wealthy. They were. That doesn't surprise me. Now, I ran out of time to research the being side of the family the way I would have liked. I blame all your grandparents for having so many children. And then naming them all the same names. <laughs> yeah, very, very. Um, but what, from what you researched, I could tell you that the Bean family has been in the United States since long before it was the United States. The furthest it looked like you got back to was Joshua Bean, born in 1719 in Rockingham County, New Hampshire. I had early ancestors there, too, around that same time. I mean, we were friends. Because I'm assuming your DNA is on Ancestry. On ancestry and my heritage. Yeah. Then we're not, we would have only been neighbors. We're not related. <laughs> well, this is the tragic tale of Alva and Eva Shaw, which would be um, your mother's first cousin three times removed. He, Alva Shaw was the grandson of Judge Samuel E. Shaw, son of Cyrus Murphy Shaw, and his wife Ardella Smith. Alva was born in Greenfield, Missouri in December 1889. In 1915, this farmer married local girl Eva Ardina Grisham. He was 25. She was 21. Adults, again. Oh, my goodness. I love it when it's age appropriate. I know. We we have so many episodes where it's like, 15? Really? And you're 30? Why? But anyhow, the couple would have only one child, a son they named Richard. And all was well and right with the world until 1940 and 25 years of marriage. Dina, as she was known, died unexpectedly on April 13th. According to Alba, his wife was inside the house spring cleaning 
He was busy outside. It was 5 p.m. when he suddenly heard a gunshot inside the house and he raced in and found his wife dead. Now, according to him, it had appeared that she had lifted, she was sprinkling, it looked like she was lifting the gun over a number of baskets and it like the hammer caught and shot her. Wow. Oh my God. That's unfortunate, but yeah. Yeah, I find it slightly suspicious given the time, 5 p.m., but, you know, you never know. But um, it's it was a shotgun, and she was apparently shot on the right side of her body just over her hip. So that does make it appear like that it's is an a, accident. That is a random place, so maybe that is right. Yeah, but I'm like you. I was thinking, oh, my gosh, um, are we sure this wasn't a murder? I thought you were going to say the little boy was playing with his gun and shot his oh, mom. No. That's what I was expecting. I thought you were going to say she shot herself commit suicide nope nope i I usually give at least a um a a trigger warning for suicide so (laughs) 10 months after dina died alba would be murdered so i stumbled on all these stories when i looked at alba's death certificate and found the following cause of death county claims murder defendant claims accident that was what was on the cause of death oh my god Mm mm-hmm on February 8th, 1941, Alba was in a car with Henry Martin and his son Marvin. According to news reports, around 4 p.m., Alba fell out of the car that was moving at about 15 miles per hour. 15, one five, so not 50, it's just 15, so not very fast. The Martins claimed that Alba was in the car for a friendly drive with them when all of a sudden he yelled, I have to get out! And he did, before the car could stop. However, The autopsy told a different story. According to the coroner, Alba suffered a broken neck, fractured skull, fractured nose, and other injuries, all clean in a way that suggested the injuries didn't happen from a fall on a gravel road. Wow. Yeah. So a coroner's inquest was held and both men were charged with murder. And why would the Martins murder Alba? Apparently, Henry Martin thought that Alba was moving in on his wife. Oh, my God. And he was jealous. So that friendly conversation wasn't so friendly. And he ended up being found guilty for the second degree murder of Alba and sentenced to 10 years. His son, Marvin, though, was acquitted. Wow. But I'll have a whole article on the actual story on the website. So if you want to read all the details, you can. But wait, there's even more on this story. I found an ad in the Greenfield Vidette on July 2nd, 1942 for a new issue of Intimate Detective Stories. You remember those old detective books that they used to sell Mm -hmm. back in the day? This issue featured a tale of a widower father who liked women and got murdered. All told by his son, Richard Shaw. Oh, my God. So their son sold the story to the book. Wow. Uh-huh. I do have one very positive story from the Mallory side that I thought I'd share. It's about Sarah May Mallory, daughter of James Sr., younger sister of James Jr. She was born in 1911. While the family at this point would be considered part of high society in St. Louis, Based on the wedding announcements, especially from her older sister, Margaret, she wasn't interested in society weddings or any of that. Instead, she left St. Louis to pursue teaching, but not just anybody. She was offered first to teach 
in India. But she was discouraged to taking that position by the American consul because um, there was a lot of trouble at the time. Instead, she went to Hawaii. And this is during the war years. This is in the 40s. And she didn't teach. Pearl Harbor. Yeah, it was right after Pearl Harbor, I believe, when she went there. But she was teaching. Where was she teaching? Oh, there it is. She was a teacher in the Territorial School for the Deaf and Blind in Honolulu. So I thought that was a pretty amazing story about her. And that was the family tree of Katrina Marshall, of Catherine Diane Mowry. Half of it, anyway. Half of it for you. I have a question. So obviously the Shaw family was pretty big in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. Um, Were they related to Henry Shaw? Who donated all the land for the Botanic Garden? That sounds familiar. Okay. I'd have to look that one up. I haven't even gotten that far. They were from Sheffield, England. Um, yes. And it, yeah. Okay. Wow. You had a lot of really interesting ancestors. And that's only half I, of I it. Just, I just found out on my dad's side that I'm related to Levi Coffin pretty closely. Levi, oh, who? wow. The president of the Underground Railroad. Oh, okay. Wow. He helped. Uh, my daughter's literally got a history book for eighth grade right now on her own cousin. And she didn't even know it. Oh, wow. That's so cool. Oh, he helped Harriet Tubman. Mm-hmm. I was, I was looking to see when he was born. I'm like, yep, I didn't go that far back. <laughs> there was enough with everything else. <laughs> I do this my dad died. I usually do this in two weeks. This one took me more like three and I had to stop because I only have so much time before the next episode. I have to start to prep. I've been doing my ancestry tree for years now. It's crazy. And then my, my DNA part just. Well, do you have any stories you want to share? Well, my grandmother, Naomi, um, great grandmother. She was a published author. She was. What'd she write? That's a good question. I actually didn't know until my great aunt Rose that I DNA matched with. She, her and I were talking about it recently and she told me about it and the name of it and I went to it. Oh, that's awesome. That's hmm. pretty neat. Now, Katrina, if anybody wants to sign this petition to try to get somebody in the police down in Dallas to do something, where should, where would they find that at? Change.org. And would they look under your name or Catherine, Diane Mallory? Actually, you can Google. Okay, awesome. And we'll also have a link on the website so people can yeah. go and sign that. I... So Mallory Cold Case would also be a good, like, Mallory Cold Case petition. Be a good Google search. I've already okay. signed it, so I'm just saying yeah. this for benefit our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was a delight to get to know you a little bit. Thank you so much for sharing your story. And... Hopefully this will pull some attention to it and get some resolution. We're, we're, we're a little podcast, but we're, we're starting to get waves going. <laughs> no worries. I, I have quite a few people that are anxious to hear it. Oh, I know. And what would I, our website though, does get a ton of traffic and we're actually number one on a few searches. So if anything, the website will get some attention. I think our website's more popular right now than our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> is it like a blog like you blog no I, it's literally podcast? i have um 
materials that support the podcast. So I'll have articles that were mentioned during it, pictures of people that we're discussing so that people can go and like, like a companion and that, but that's Story. also where the blog is. I mean, that's also not the blog. That's also where the podcast is too. That's where it originates and then it goes into the Apple and stuff from there. So you can listen to it from the website. Well, and that's where you can find dear listeners, all of our cool merch. Yes. Just saying. <laughs> We have some cool merch. I added a couple new things that I meant to do a while ago. So like I have, um, we have shirts now on the website, like just a girl who likes true crime and genealogy and just a boy and just a person. Nice. Trying to be very yeah. inclusive of everybody. Very yeah, cool. You don't want anyone getting offended anymore, you know. <laughs> I'm not even worried about the offending. I just want everybody to get what they want. And so... Not to mention, we're just kind of offensive in general, um, especially people like to nitpick. We get we get people who are just like we get a lot of well, actually, <laughs> yeah, so that's super fun. Yes, thank you for finding so many stories. Those were kind of neat. I'm glad you like them. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Katrina, and thank you for reaching out to us to share your story. If you enjoyed our discussion on murder and family, we would love it if you would subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. You could also help support our podcast by becoming a patron on patreon.com slash murderousroots. For more information on this episode and past episodes, as well as merchandise, just go to our website at murderousroots.com. And of course, you can also find us on social media at Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and even on TikTok. Thanks, everyone.